Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. I want to welcome uh, you all here to Rayburn for uh, an event called a Capitol, This is a Capitol Hill Briefing entitled Fall Fables and Fallacies, The Truth About Free Trade. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And again, I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, before we begin, if you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet short and appropriate questions to us at hashtag Cato Events. Uh, this is the latest segment in our multi-part Hill briefing series that will examine a number of policy areas of particular interest to lawmakers as well as to the electorate at large. The series is entitled Fall, Fables, and Fallacies, and here we'll try and set the record straight and dispel the prevalent misunderstandings that are, in our view, adversely influencing public policy discussions. Last month, we looked at economic and income inequality as well as the state of policing in America. More are planned for November, but today we will take a look at free trade. Uh, to do that, I've asked Cato's Daniel J. Eikenson to give his presentation today. Dan is, of course, the director of Cato's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, where he coordinates and conducts research on all manner of international trade and investment policies. Since joining Cato in 2000, Eikenson has authored dozens of papers on various aspects of trade policy, focusing his research on U.S.-China trade relations, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements, and institutions. Globalization, U.S. manufacturing issues, trade politics, and trade remedies are all under his purview. In addition to his many studies and articles, I can send his co-author of the book, Anti-Dumping Exposed, The Devilish Details of Unfair Trade Law. He has testified before congressional committees on a variety of policy matters and has appeared on numerous television news programs and networks. His articles have been published in widely circulated newspapers and magazines, including the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and many more. Eikenson holds an MA in Economics from George Washington University. Uh, we will leave time for questions at the end, but for now, let's please welcome Dan Eikenson. Thank you, Peter. Th thanks, everybody, for showing up. I hope it's not just the sandwiches that uh, was the draw. Uh, but if that's the case, Brendan, can you lock the door, please? <laughs> uh, I've been at Cato for 16 years, and in 16 years, I've never heard trade. Uh, trade has never been quite so topical. And unfortunately, it's uh, been more the subject of derision than uh, reverence. And I think uh, that's a problem we really need to overcome. There are a lot of fallacies out there that are guiding the discussion, coming from the political stump mostly, but interest groups and the media as well. And I've been working on the, a book for many years. <laughs> that, uh, part of the book is, is to discuss these, these prominent myths about trade. Uh, and I, I want to talk about that uh, today. You know, after the, the, the Trade Center at Cato, our mission is to uh, inform the public and policymakers about the benefits of free trade uh, and the cost of protectionism. And given the climate today, I think a pretty strong case could be made that maybe we're not doing a very good job. And, uh, but I want to keep my job. So we're going to, uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about trade demagoguery in the 2016 elections. Uh, you know, Every four years, trade is dragged through the mud to a certain extent. Uh, but this year, it's been entirely different. It has persisted uh, through the primaries, through the conventions. Uh, and uh, the rhetoric has come from all sides of the ideological and political spectra. Uh, but it's because of these myths. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with myths, there was once a time when people believed that the Earth was the center of our solar system. That was a myth that was refuted as was this notion that the Earth was flat. 
And likewise, we, we, we aim to refute these other kinds of myths. Uh, we hear this from Donald Trump, we're losing at trade, we're, 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 we're getting killed. Uh, Bernie Sanders has a slightly different tack, uh, but these are, these are these, and I'm going to describe that in a second, but these are uh, fairly prominent representations of what we're hearing about trade. So here are what I think are the top five populist trade myths that we have heard. And the first one is, is Donald Trump's, all right? That has an appeal to economic nationalism, this us versus them, zero-sum game sort of talk. Um, the trade deficit means the United States is losing at trade. We always hear that. You know, we hear trade advocates pointing out the countries with whom we have trade surpluses because, wow, trade agreements are great. And we hear trade opponents saying, oh, we have trade deficits with, uh, with NAFTA countries and with Korea. So, so as though that were the scoreboard. Um, this notion that trade only benefits big business and the rich, this was more the, the progressive pitch, the Bernie Sanders view, uh, that it's uh, really the, the corporations and the, those who earn their livings off of investment rather than wages uh, are the beneficiaries. Foreign outsourcing, uh, for years we've heard about that. Uh, uh, we've heard Trump has responded to uh, the decision of carrier to move jobs to Mexico. Uh, we heard Mitt Romney and Barack Obama in 2012 accusing each other as to who was the bigger outsourcer, who was, the, uh, who was more guilty of that crime. And then my favorite of all is trade and globalization killed U.S. manufacturing. Uh, here, here is this, this premise. It's, it's almost like you've, you forget the assertion that U.S. manufacturing was killed. It's like, what caused it? Well, trade and globalization ca caused it. But the fact is, uh, U.S. manufacturing was not killed. Man U.S. manufacturing is thriving. It's been thriving, and I'll show you some, some slides on that. Um, but let me, let, let me go through these myths one by one. And uh, so here, the essence of this, this myth is trade is a competition between Team USA and Team China, or Team Mexico, or Team Japan. Um, exports are our points. Imports are the foreign team's points. The trade account is the scoreboard. This is a sport, after all. The scoreboard shows a deficit, so we're losing. Uh, and we're losing, of course, because the foreign team is cheating. All right, that, that, is, that is the essence of, uh, of uh, Donald Trump's message. Um, you know, when we have trade negotiations, it sort of reinforces this myth. It seems like there's Team America, represented by the USTR, who is going out to uh, secure market access abroad for American exporters, and at the same time trying to keep the US market closed. So it's this, this, this uh, monolithic U.S. interest and a monolithic foreign interest, uh, when in fact, uh, that's not the case at all. In fact, my, my favorite players in trade negotiations are the foreign negotiators, because they're trying to open up our market. Trying to open up our market, that's where the benefits of trade come from. Um, trade is not a competition at the national level. Trade is just millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of transactions every day between people who are trying to obtain value. You know, I, I, I'm careful when I spend my money on particular products. I want to get as, uh, the biggest bang for my buck. Um, that's, that's all trade is, it's just aggregated. We, we know when we go to the store, we want to, we want to run a trade deficit, basically. We want to part with as few dollars as possible for as much good or service as possible. And we recognize that, we understand that, but when it comes to the national level where we're aggregating up, it seems to no longer hold, uh, but it is, it is true. Um, purchases of uh, intermediate goods and capital equipment constitute 
half of the value of U.S. imports. If it's us versus them, and imports are their points, how do you explain 50% of the value of U.S. imports being capital equipment, intermediate goods, undergirding the activities, revenue generation, profit generation, job creation of U.S. businesses? Um, the fact is we have a globally interdependent uh, economy. Uh, the factory floor that used to be contained in a, in a factory in Ohio has broken through the walls, right, and it now spans borders and oceans. So we have value-added activity happening all around the world. So if we treat imports as the other team's points, or we want to erect a wall to, to bar those imports, we're just raising our own costs of production, making it harder for companies to make profits and to hire people and to invest. Um, you know, we hear a lot about China and the trade deficit, the bilateral trade deficit with China. I mean, bilateral trade deficits are, 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 are meaningless. Uh, given the, gl the global nature of trade. 50% um, of the value of imports from China is value that comes from other countries. It just happens to, China happens to be the last country uh, that, that the product is assembled before it comes to the United States. Um, and often those components that are snapped together in China are U.S. made components uh, and other countries' components. You're all probably familiar with the Apple example. It's been floating around since about 2007, but I'm, I'm going to show you. Uh, you know, we, we, we hear about this trade, not only do we have a trade deficit with China, but we have a trade deficit in high-tech goods when all theory said we're supposed to have a trade surplus in high-tech goods. Well, by high-tech goods, they mean Apple, iPhones, and iPads, and, and the devices that we so commonly use. And what this shows us is that just a very small fraction of the value of the iPhone, is, this is the iPhone example. So it started with the iPod, then they did an iPhone and an iPad. Um, but um, $6 of $179 is Chinese value added. Chinese labor, a, sm a small plastic component. The rest comes from these other countries. But when we import these iPods from China, that that whole $179 registers as an import value. But in fact, it's, that's not import value. It's not Chinese import value. And when, and when it's imported, the price is marked up about 100%. It's, and that covers transportation and warehousing and advertising and retailing and retained earnings that go to the shareholders or reta retained earnings and, and dis distributions to shareholders. But the retained earnings generate the next uh, generation of products. Um, the, the R&D that goes into all of it. If it were, if the, the, uh, before Steve Jobs died, President Obama asked him, can't we bring back the, uh, the, the, the Chinese value added and do it here in the United States, do everything here? And Steve Jobs said, no, we can't, we, because that would raise the cost and that would raise the price point. And had we done that, these products wouldn't have been quite so ubiquitous and we would not have seen the evolution of <coughs> the apps industries and the accessories industries and Uber and Airbnb. So uh, we have to recognize that the efficiencies that, uh, that Apple uh, obtains by sourcing the way it does uh, enables uh, whole new generations of industries that central planners could never contemplate. So this is also a prominent one. Uh, I get in debates with people about this all the time. We've been hearing for a long time that the trade deficit means the United States is losing at trade. Um, the trade deficit doesn't really have anything to do with trade policy. It has a lot to do with investment, 
uh, and savings and disparate patterns uh, of, of savings and investment. Um, it's, uh, we've, been having, we've been running trade deficits since 1975, every year, 41 straight years. And throughout that period, we've been hearing, you know, we can't afford to keep running these trade deficits. This is this huge debt that we are uh, uh, putting on the shoulders of our children and grandchildren. Um, there's all this economic leakage. Um, but, but the fact is, uh, we can't look at the trade deficit in isolation. You need to look at the trade deficit or the current account and the capital account. So what, what equals zero is the, the amount that Americans purchase, the, the amount of goods and service, services that Americans purchase from foreigners exceeds the amount of goods and services that foreigners buy from Americans. That's, that's the trade deficit. But there's a capital account surplus. That means those dollars, that extra dollars that go out, come back into the United States in the form of investment. Whether it's investment in government debt or corporate debt or equities or foreign direct investment in factories, it comes back and it undergirds value added uh, and job creation. I mean, I would say buying government debt is probably the least efficient way to do it, but it does come back. Um, and it explains why the, how the economy has been able to grow uh, considerably over these 41 years. Basically, Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971, and the world was looking for a reserve currency. And the dollar was the most attractive place to invest. So investors, was a safe haven in the United States. They came, they invested in debt, real assets, equities, uh, and that excess of investment has to be spent on goods and services. Um, so there's no leakage. If, if, if you look at the bottom there, there's that, the national income identity. I'll, I'll, I'm going to change the slide. So anybody who's taken economics in undergrad is probably familiar with the national income identity, which is, it just says output. What, what do we, how do we dispose of our output? What do we do with it? Well, we consume it, see, as consumers. Uh, we consume it as business, I, which is investment. We consume it as government, uh, or, we or we export it. Those four channels, uh, they, that's all we can do with our output. So, so why do we take M off? Uh, you know, media folks, when I talk to them, they, they say, well, obviously imports detract from economic growth because you subtract M, uh, and it has a negative relationship with Y. But we take M off because what we consume government uh, purchases and what we export contains domestic and imported components. So if we didn't subtract M, we would be um, exaggerating GDP by the amount we import. I mean, wh why else would you subtract imports uh, when you're trying to figure out how, how, how we dispensed with our output? What does imports have to do with it? Well, we're taking that out because spending on C, I, G, and X includes imports. The, these are just some numbers. This is 40 years of observations. Uh, if, if the trade deficit, or, or this, this is the relationship between imports and GDP. We hear that you know, imports detract from GDP. Well, if that were the case, we would expect to see all those observations in the upper left and lower right quadrants. But only one is in, in, in one of those two quadrants. This is showing there's a positive relationship between imports and GDP. And, and it's intuitive. As the economy is growing, we spend more. And we spend more on domestic goods and imported goods. Um, so if imports detract from the economy, it doesn't really show up in these kinds of numbers. Here's the uh, same sort of uh, picture with, with jobs. Well, come on. Uh, there are a few more observations, a few years where there's the inverse relationship. But by and large, imports uh, 
undergird economic growth and job creation. Um, I, I like to pick on Robert Scott at EPI he, because, you know, he does a good job of publishing on an annual, uh, actually twice a year, uh, a report on job loss due to the trade deficit, manufacturing job loss due to trade with China. And it's, it's, a, it's a methodology, he uses a methodology that's been rebuked by economists across the, the, the spectrum. Uh, but he, he, he assigns job losses by state and by city, I mean by, by state and, and the District of Columbia. So he had something like 880 job losses in the District of Columbia last year on account of tr manufacturing job losses on account of trade with China. But that's not any manufacturing in D.C., right? The, the occasional meth lab, perhaps, but other than that. <laughs> uh, so there is, you know, you, you hear these bold statements, but the data, uh, d d you know, go against that. So this is, this is um, Bernie Sanders' perspective. Um, a lot of progressives say, Why, I don't want, we, we don't like trade. We don't like trade agreements. They're good for, they're good for big business and, and the rich. Certainly, trade policy formulation has some corporate welfare built into it. I think business and interests represented in Washington clearly have um, greater access to the policymaking process. Um, free trade agreements reflect the wishes of interested parties. Um, so I, th th that is true. But when we reduce trade barriers, big business wants trade barriers to come down, but it's a constrained optimization question for them because they're blazing a path for small business and medium-sized business in the U.S. who have a more difficult time dealing with foreign trade barriers and foreign regulations. So U.S. companies, big companies, put their weight behind this. They get these barriers <coughs> taken down. Uh, and, and it's the smaller companies for whom they get a bigger, they get a bigger benefit because the smaller companies, Trade barriers are a bigger cost relative to the total cost for smaller companies. Big business wants to get rid of these barriers, but at the same time they say, well, we could keep our domestic competitors at bay by sitting on our hands and not doing anything. It's the smaller companies, the medium-sized companies that benefit the most uh, for, because of trade liberalization. Likewise, our, our tariff system, our taxes, our, 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 our import duties, perhaps the most regressive tax in the system other than the lottery. So our average tariffs are about one and a half to two percent on all of the products in the tariff schedule. But we have tariff peaks on clothing, on footwear, on food products, and we have anti-dumping and countervailing duty measures on housing, on you know, lumber, cement, steel, flooring, nails, appliances, uh, cabinetry, uh, paint. That's food, clothing, and shelter that uh, is disproportionately affected. Uh, by our trade barriers. Uh, those are life's basic necessities. If you're Bernie Sanders, if you are looking out for uh, Americans that are having a tougher go of it, you should be in favor of trade liberalization. It's, it, it's it really, the old adage that uh, the tariff is the mother of the trust still, uh, still applies. These are just some products. You're telling me that uh, uh, th these are products that aren't traded very much, and this is what's happened over their prices over, over this period of time. You know, motor vehicle insurance isn't really traded cross borders, postage, eggs don't make the trans transport all that easily. Uh, some of these other things, college, we're, we're starting to see a little bit more competition there, but uh, 
This is what's happened to prices of these products these, that, that are generally not traded. They've gone up considerably. These are products that we do trade quite a lot. This is what's happened to their prices over this same seven, eight-year period. So is this wealthy Americans? Is this big business benefiting? Uh, it seems to me that these are uh, um, th these would benefit lower income people more. Does anybody know what car that is? Some of the uh, some of the gray gray grayer haired people. No. <laughs> same 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 maker. That's the that's a 1978 AMC Pacer. Remember the Pacer? They had it in Wayne's World too. That was the that was the that was the cool car they drove in Wayne's World. Uh, so this is what the American car companies were giving us back in the late 70s, before there was any Japanese investment here, before there was any foreign production of automobiles. We had cars like that, the, uh, the Hornet, the Ford Pinto, which would you know, explode on rear impact every once in a while. Uh, they didn't have any competition. But we've lowered trade barriers. We've opened up to investment. Um, and that's the best thing that's happened to consumers. That's the best thing that's happened to the US auto industry, quite frankly, to have this competition. Uh, this is trade not benefiting big business, but benefiting <coughs> consumers, everyday people. And these are other kinds of products that are either made by foreign companies in the United States or made along global supply chains, but we associate with the United States. These, these are less expensive because of trade. So it's not that it's benefiting big business. Um, foreign outsourcing hurts the U.S. economy. Intuitively, you'd think, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, if we have a factory in Ohio that we take down rafter by rafter and bolt by bolt and we ship all that, those components to Mexico and resurrect the factory there and then produce and export back to the United States, yeah, that has that feel that that would be hurting the U.S. economy. But that's really the exception and not the rule. I mean, most outsourcing, nine, about 90 percent uh, of outsourcing uh, of in, outward investment is to produce for foreign markets, either the market where the factory or service center was set up or hotel or restaurant or, uh, or a different one. Um, it, it, it also happens to be the case that companies that outsource, that invest abroad, you know, to get, have a better chance of accessing the market, to understand the market better, to act as a, a hub uh, or a, uh, a channel through which more uh, U.S. exports go to those countries. Uh, the, co the companies that do that also tend to invest more at home. There's a complementary relationship between the investment of U.S. multinational parent companies in the U.S. and their foreign affiliates. I'm going to show you some slides in a second. Um, uh, but you know, there's there's a variety of reasons to outsource, and we need to keep this in mind. You know, when uh, you know my colleague Dan Pearson pointed out. Um, when Carrier left, you know, one of the reasons Carrier left is because the price of steel uh, uh, and some of the, uh, the price of its inputs are subject to anti-dumping restraints, countervailing duty restraints, and uh, they have no say in the process uh, at the International Trade Commission, for example. Um, they're being chased offshore to a certain extent by U.S. policies. We are in a global environment where we are competing for investment. The United States is competing against other countries to attract investment. And investment is going to go to the places <coughs> where it makes the most sense to go, where there's a good mar big market, where the workers have particular skills, uh, where there's access to infrastructure, um, where the rule of law persists, 
things like that. So U.S. policymakers need to recognize that you can't invite Tim Cook before a committee and berate him for keeping Apple's profits offshore and other CEOs when they are responding to the environment that was created right here, the laws that were passed here. Um, so they need to recognize that you can't berate companies and, ex and, and, and punish them into staying and doing what is perceived up here to be good, po good, good public policy. They need to have the right incentives. Companies don't need to be here in the United States. They can go, they can go elsewhere. Um, but that said, I said that there's this complementary relationship between um, outsourcing and, and, and uh, investment at home. So this is capital expenditures. Um, on the vertical axis is the multinational parents in the U.S. they're spending, and then their foreign affiliates abroad. So you see that when there's more capital expenditures abroad, there's more at home at the same time. Um, just look at the observations. I've done this for five or six. This is not as robust as previous slides because there are fewer observations, but this is for value added, which is basically output. Um, look, they're all up in that, they're, they're all directly related. Uh, R&D expenditures, same thing, they go up and, uh, in both places simultaneously. Compensation, employment, you get the picture. Um, this is my favorite, as I said, of all of, the, of all of the myths. You hear it time and time again. We bring out the facts. Uh, the fact is U.S. manufacturing year after year sets new records with respect to revenues, returns on investment, often profits, um, exports, imports, <coughs> except when we go into recessions, cyclical recessions, like the rest of the economy, um, where the U.S. manufacturer is not doing particularly well is with respect to jobs. But think about that. I mean, the whole objective of economics is to produce more with less. Uh, that's, the, that's the source of wealth creation. If you have 10 guys on the production line to make a ton of steel in, a, in one day, and then a new machine uh, is used the next year, and you only need five guys, you've just doubled output per person, basically doubled income per person. What about those five other people? For us to really benefit from this, those five other people need to find, the five people who lost their jobs need to find new jobs. Is that trade's burden? To me, that is the burden of policy, uh, to make sure that we eliminate labor market frictions so that people can, uh, can, can move to new jobs as quickly as possible. Um, so the uh, U.S. manufacturing peaked. Uh, the, the, the other area is, yeah, Employment in U.S. manufacturing peaked in 1979 at 19.4 million workers. Maybe I have a slide. Uh, this is output. Um, uh, so this is real manufacturing output. So you see that's going up. There's cyclical downturns. Um, this is real manufacturing value added. Same thing. This is what matters. Um, okay, so this, in, on this slide I've got real manufacturing value added, the red line. And, and those bars are as a share of the economy. And this is where you hear people grandstanding, that the U.S. manufacturing has shrunk relative to the size of the economy. Well, who cares? I mean, what matters is that we're, we're, we're producing more in the manufacturing sector. U.S. share, manufacturing as a share of the economy peaked in 1953 uh, at 21% uh, or something like that. Um, that's measured on, on, on that bar. 
uh, maybe you know, 28% or something like that. Um, and at that time, it was a, manufacturing was a very important source of the economy. Today, it's 12% uh, of the economy. But in 1953, U.S. manufacturing produced $110 billion of value added. Last year, $2.1 trillion. So about 20 times. In real terms, six times greater. So we're producing so much more, yet manufacturing as, uh, as a driver of the economy is much less important than it used to be. Um, so we need to stop entertaining these ideas that we need to make special, uh, uh, adopt special policies, industrial policy, put up protectionist barriers to protect U.S. manufacturing. Uh, there are a lot of ways to help U.S. manufacturing by undoing bad regulations, tax policy, other disincentives from, uh, from per per performing well. So here's the, that employment picture. It peaked in 1979, uh, 19.4 million jobs. We hear that NAFTA hollowed out U.S. manufacturing workers. Well, um, between that peak in 1979 and 1993, the year before NAFTA, that's what, uh, 14, 14 years, we lost 2.7 million, or 2.6 million manufacturing jobs. In the 14 years from 1993 to 2007, same number. So it's, it's just on the same trajectory. And in fact, I'm not going to say that NAFTA created manufacturing jobs, but if you look at n these years, five years, we added 600,000 jobs in manufacturing. I'm not going to say manufacturing created it, uh, that NAFTA created it, but if you're going to tell me that NAFTA destroyed U.S. manufacturing jobs, you have to grapple with that at least. Um, and then this is just total employment, uh, U.S. employment. So, um, and this is, we're, we're a year behind, so employment is higher than that now. It's at a record. Um, and then you know, over the years, this is what's happened in uh, employment. Uh, this is an older slide that I've incorporated here, but we've seen loss of manufacturing jobs, but growth in every other sector, including, unfortunately, <coughs> government. Um, so, and then this is, my, this is my favorite. We hear, oh, there's this race to the bottom. And w U.S. companies are divesting of the United States to go to China or Mexico or developing countries where there are lax labor standards and environmental rules don't matter and nobody cares about product safety. And, um, that's not true. U.S. companies, or Western companies, when they invest abroad, they have a brand to, to protect. Yes, there are going to be some occasions where there are um, unsavory practices with respect to labor or environment. But by and large, these companies are protecting their brands and it's the profit motive, the ugly profit motive, that keeps them acting in line. But, but this is the, the statistic here that I wanted to show you is there's $1.2 trillion of investment in U.S. manufacturing, foreign investment. So if U.S. manufacturing is in decline, somebody hasn't told the Europeans, the Japanese, the Chinese. I mean, we have more than twice as much investment in U.S. manufacturing than there is foreign investment in Chinese manufacturing. People want to come here for a variety of reasons. So when you hear the story that manufacturing is in decline, um, it's, it's a tall tale. It, it doesn't employ the number of people it once did. It's not as important to the economy as it once was. But that's progress. But to put the exclamation point on that progress, we need to have policies that reduce or eliminate the frictions uh, so people can get new jobs. And that's it. So I'll stop and we can engage in some conversation. Thanks very much.